God, I pray that you just bless uh, Patrick and Tracy. Lord, bless, bless everybody in our family here that's just not with us today. Um, Father, may we uh, continue to move in a way that glorifies you. May this be a sweet aroma unto you, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen. So we've got a, a special guest here with us. Um, um, I want to introduce Steve Barshoon. For those of you who do not know, he's part of the Biblical Ministries Worldwide, um, which is awesome. BMW, that's just next level. Um, He's been in Utah for 45 years doing ministry. That is amazing. That's awesome. Um, him and his wife, Lori, uh, both minister with Biblical Ministries Worldwide, um, and he will be sharing a message with us today. Please welcome him. Well, it's good to be with you today. And uh, I'll just warn in advance, I'm struggling a little bit with some allergy-induced asthma. So if I start coughing, I'll eventually quit and we'll go on. But uh, if you'll just be gracious and bear with me if that's what happens. Well, it's a delight uh, to be here. Uh, we've visited a few times through the years. Uh, this is one of the churches that we regularly pray for, along with uh, Patrick and Tracy and Brendan, and uh, we just uh, continue to rejoice in the good things that God is doing here in uh, North Valley. Well, the title of the message this morning is There's Nothing Better Than Jesus. Uh, advertising bombards us with products that are new or improved. I just saw something recently that the, that phrase, new and improved, is the most often used phrase on the internet in advertising. Now maybe I think things through a little bit too much because I don't know how something can be new and improved. Because if it's brand new, it's the first one of its kind. You know, you, you have to get to version 1.1 at least before it's improved, right? Um, it reminded me that years ago, uh, this idea of model years for our cars, that was something that came into the business relatively um, after you know, the Model A's and Model T's. Somebody's going, what can we do to convince people that they need a new one every year? And so they came up with the concept of a model year. It didn't really mean a whole lot had changed, especially not in the 30s. Um, and but it it gave someone an incentive. Oh, you have a 1931. Well, mine is a 1932. It has 2.5 more ounces of chrome. So you know this was the uh, the beginning of marketing. But I I found some of these new and improved products. One of them was waffles. Uh, they were described as new and improved. And I'm thinking, does that mean we should have never eaten the old ones? And then this one was really interesting, the uh, Chihuahua Jalapeno. Now, when I first read the title, I thought, must be a new breed of dog. <laughs> no, it turns out it's a new variety of cheese. And then Keebler 
brought us the new look for Chips Deluxe. And uh, you think, well, that, that's got to be good, right? Well, actually, all they did was change the picture on the package. They didn't do anything to make the cookie better. Um, and then this, uh, this last one. This one sounds scary. New and improved. It's a Band-Aid, and it promises to peel off your skin in just three days and urges feel the peel. I thought the whole idea was finding a bandage that didn't peel your skin off after three days. That's the kind of Band-Aid I want to buy. Well, when it comes to the truth about Jesus Christ, there are always people trying to find ways to say, well, we found a new take on this, or we need to go back to this old ceremony, this old process, because uh, that's better. That's a, a better form of, of worship. Well, the book of Hebrews is a book about Jesus and how in every way he is better than the old elements of religion that were familiar to these readers. They looked back on the feasts, the ceremonies, the beauty of their temple, and I think for all of us, uh, there's always a temptation to think that going back to the familiar, back to the way of life, or even embracing the way of life of, of those around us is a way out of any current difficulties and the pressures we experience. Israel had this problem continually in the wilderness. They thought back to Egypt. And what did they remember about Egypt? They remembered the buffets where they had leeks and they had garlic and they had plenty of meat and fish and they, they longed for those days. Isn't it amazing, and this is so true of us as well, that no one ever said in those times of remembering the food of Egypt, the frights of Egypt, the wail of infants being tossed into the Nile to their death, the, the cry of the mothers. Uh, they forgot the slave drivers. They forgot the whip. The way back is a way of death. The way ahead is a path of blessing and life in Jesus. So the writer of Hebrews, and you don't have to agree with me on this, I think it was Paul, and I know that... Uh, that is a subject of some great debate, but irregardless, he shows us the reasons why Jesus is superior, and not just superior, that he is sufficient, and that salvation is not Jesus plus anything that any man or angel or priest could do. Jesus is shown to be the sufficient Savior, the final and complete payment for sin. Jesus is also shown to be the supreme, holding together the creation that he brought into it in existence and that he's now seated on the throne in heaven from which he rules and reigns. Here's how this amazing book begins in Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 
but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And that's what we want to look at this morning. First of all, how God spoke in the past through prophets. The very first verse there states, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now the opening words of this letter are an affirmation of Israel's interaction with God down through the previous centuries. It identifies the writer with the readers, affirming their common heritage of faith. But the most important thing of all the author is affirming is that God spoke. You know, sometimes people refer to idols as dumb idols. In most cases, they're referring to the worship of man-made objects as stupid. But in another sense, they are dumb because idols cannot speak. Jeremiah the prophet declares that God is speaking to them. And one of the things God is saying is how worthless their idols are because they look like something living, but they cannot do anything. In Jeremiah 10.5, God says this, Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. The Old Testament is all about God speaking. The very opening verses of the book of Genesis, chapter 1, ten times it says, God said. And as God spoke, the universe came into being. And then the earth was formed and everything that is living was created by God and placed on this world. God did not merely speak man into an existence, but formed him and breathed him life and spoke to and with the man and the woman that he had created. God spoke to Moses, and God's word became written for the first time. Joshua, Moses' successor, is told by God that his success is dependent upon his knowledge and obedience to the word of God that he had given through Moses. Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. The writer of Psalm 119 would declare the wonder and the necessity of God's word for living and a man's relationship with God. The psalmist exclaims in Psalm 119, 105, 
Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So God spoke. But then how did God speak? Well, first of all, it tells us that God spoke many times. God spoke to Adam and Eve after they sinned. They went and hid from God, but God cried out there in the garden, Where are you? And God spoke to them and promised a redeemer. God spoke and called Abraham from Ur. God spoke through Moses to Pharaoh and delivered his people from Egypt. God spoke to a succession of prophets from Moses to Malachi. And then interesting enough, God quit speaking for 400 years. We call those the silent years between the Old and the New Testaments. You know, we talk about people who in their speech or in their drama have a pregnant pause. You know, that pause because they want everyone to recognize they're about to say something really important. I, I remember when I was in radio, one of our speakers was Tony Evans. If you've ever heard Tony Evans preach, he, he's a guy that likes pregnant pauses. Now that's okay, unless you're tearing your radio station apart while you're transmitting his messages. And every time he stops, you go, oh no, I just bumped that wire. Did I disconnect it? Did I get something crossed? Is he going to come back? I, I went through that one whole evening with me and a, a, a technician as we're trying to get ready to change out a control board. And every time he paused, I quit breathing. And then when he started again, I could breathe again. We're still on the air. We still got Tony. We're going to be okay. Well, God stopped for 400 years. And when he started to speak again, he spoke through his son. You know, it says here that God spoke in many ways. God spoke directly to people through the prophets, plus he used many non-verbal me methods also. Uh, think of a few of those non-verbal methods. Abraham being asked to offer his son Isaac on the very mountain where Jesus would one day die. God was speaking through that whole situation. You know, Isaac asked on the way up, where's the lamb? And what did Abraham say? God will provide himself a lamb. Now, maybe they didn't catch it all at the time, but Abraham was speaking as God was directing him, and he was saying, someday God's going to provide a lamb, and there will be no more need for these lambs and goats and, and uh, uh, bulls and all the other things they would sacrifice. Consider the imagery of the Passover, the, the feasts, the tabernacle, the sacrificial system that God gave to Israel, considering God's dealings with the nation that repeatedly demonstrated his love and his holiness. One of the ways that God spoke to the nation was through a bronze snake on a pole. Their disobedience had brought God's judgment on them as a nation, Israel. People were dying because of snake bite. 
And when they cried out to God for deliverance, God told Moses, make a bronze snake. Put it up on a pole so it can be seen by everyone in the camp. And everyone that looks at the snake will be healed. I don't know about you, but if Moses told me, yes, you've been bitten, just look at that snake over there and you'll be okay, I would be like, don't we need to, you know, cut this thing open and suck the poison out? And from what I understand, the latest science says, no, don't do that. (laughs) Rush to the nearest ER. But, you know, that was the traditional way to handle it for a millennium. And yet, those that scoffed at something that simple, being a cure for steak bite, died. And those that took God at his word and looked, lived. And Jesus would later pick that up. We're going to look at that a little later. And use that picture from the Old Testament to show how people would be saved by looking to him for salvation. Well, how God has spoken to us through our son, let's consider his son. That's what we want to consider next. Hebrews 1, 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, by whom he appointed, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now, God has spoken to us by his son two ways. One of the ways is the truth that he gave us by sending his son. And secondly, what the son told us when he came. First of all, what did God say by sending his son? Well, what God said by sending his son is that sin is awful. You know, every Christmas I kind of cringe because everybody gets real sentimental about mangers and angels and kings and all this stuff. And yet, why was that baby there? That baby was there because he had a destiny with the cross. And his reason for coming first and foremost, and by his own words, was to seek and to save that which was lost. And that would require his death. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short, of the glory of God. The fact that God sent his son tells us how awful sin is. And the fact that God sent us his son tells us we could not save ourselves. Romans 8.3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh if it were just a matter of doing the right things, if it was just a matter of living the right way, if it was a matter of of belonging to the right religious organization or having the right ceremonies, there would be no point in God sending his son. But in order for us to be saved, the son had to come. 
Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. But also, the fact that God sent his son tells us how much he loves us. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Nowhere is the love of God displayed in a greater way than in the cross. The cross is the ultimate demonstration of how much God loves us. It is the demonstration of how far God was willing to go to redeem us. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. I need to ask you this morning, have you responded to God's love? You know, we've all read stories and seen movies where someone is passionately in love with someone else, and that person doesn't even know they're alive. You know, we call that unrequited love. And you know, there's a formula for these movies and stories. You know, they'll spend almost the entire book or movie building up the tension of what this poor guy's going through because he loves her so much and she doesn't know he exists. And then suddenly there'll be a plot twist and she'll realize what a wonderful man he is. He'll save her from death or rip her off the railroad tracks or whatever it takes. And at that point, all is turned around. But you know, the the greatest story of unrequited love in the universe is the fact that God loved every one of us. And he loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us. And so many people go through life oblivious to the great love of God and never come to respond to his love by trusting Jesus Christ as his Savior. Romans 3, 23 to 25 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Jesus is God's final word on sin and salvation. Trusting Jesus as one Savior is a positive response to God's final word. There's nothing else to say because Jesus, God's final word about sin, the utter impossibility of a man doing anything to save himself, the final word on God's love, providing a way of reconciliation through the payment of Jesus Christ for our sin on the cross. Michael Card wrote these words. He spoke the incarnation, and then so was born a son. His final word was Jesus. He needed no other one. Spoke flesh and blood so he could bleed and make a way divine. And so was born a baby who would die to make it mine. Well then, what did the son say? Jesus' message was the same as the Father's. Jesus explained to Nicodemus 
using one of those many ways that we referenced earlier in the Old Testament. In John chapter 3, verses 14 to 16, Jesus said to Nicodemus, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We've already described what happened to Israel in the wilderness, how they were bitten by snakes and they died. And the only ones that lived were the ones that believed what God said and looked at that bronze serpent. We know that what healed them was not the sight of a serpent. What healed them was their faith in what God had said. And Jesus is saying that in the exact same way he's going to be lifted up on a cross. And when people come to grips with what Jesus accomplished on that cross and they look to Jesus and Jesus alone as their Savior from sin, that they are healed from sin, they're made whole, and they're made right with God. You must believe that Jesus' death was for you and that his death was sufficient to enter into eternal life. Now, in our last point this morning, we want to look at how Jesus is superior to the prophets. You know, the, the Jewish people held prophets in great regard, and they, they, uh, they had their, their prophets hall of fame, if you want to call it that. You know, guys like Moses and Elijah and Samuel and even some references to David as a great prophet because of the prophetic scriptures that David gave us in the Psalms. But the point here is as wonderful as those prophets were, Jesus is superior. Even Moses said, God is going to give you a prophet like me someday. And he's going to do even greater things than I ever did. And he was looking ahead prophetically to Jesus Christ. But here's what it says. Long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. You know, I started studying this passage. I, I just was overwhelmed with this description of Jesus. And we need to remember that the purpose of this author is to show us that Jesus isn't just better, but that Jesus is in a unique category all his own because he is God in the flesh. He is the God-man. And, you know, sometimes we we start looking at all of the facts and we miss the, the focus that Jesus 
is the one who possesses all deity of the Father in human form. But there are a number of reasons given here why Jesus is better. First of all, because he is the Son. He is spoken to us by his Son. Jesus could say to people that when they saw him, they had seen the Father. You know, the prophets were good men, and they delivered God's word to their generation, but they were limited in the fact that they were just men. And Jesus was God himself in the flesh. The prophets spoke about Jesus. What's interesting is they often spoke about Jesus and didn't understand even what they were writing and saying. Um, look at 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that you have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So here are the prophets. They're writing about Jesus. They're writing about the Messiah that would come. And they don't get it. You know, even in Jesus' day, the disciples, every time Jesus talked about his death, Peter even went so far as to rebuke him. Well, you're the Messiah. Messiahs don't die. That was ingrained in their thinking, you know. And yet the prophets were very clear. Isaiah 53, we could look at a number of the Psalms that the Messiah had to die. In fact, that was the purpose of his first coming. He came to die for sin. And so Jesus is superior because he's not just a prophet, not just a man. He is the son. Secondly, because he is the heir. He appointed him the heir of all things. Jesus is the heir of the universe. It all belongs to him. We are called joint heirs with Christ because we inherit because of our relationship with Jesus Christ because we are in him. Because he is the creator. The writer of Hebrews says, through whom also he created the world. John 1.3 says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus created everything that exists. Only God can do that. Jesus created our universe and our world and the people that are in it, as well as all of the other life that we see. The prophets are part of his creation. And the prophets testified to his greatness as creator, but they were not creators. And then because he possesses the visible glory of God. Here it says the radiance of the glory of God. Now during his earthly ministry, the visible glory of Christ was veiled. 
except for that one incredible day on the Mount of Transfiguration. I think it's interesting what uh, John, who later was, was there and saw that, he wrote in John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then, because he is God in bodily form. The, the phrase here, the exact imprint of his nature, uh, this word meant to engrave. It, it's the same word we get the word character from. Everything God is, every bit of his glory, every detail of his attributes is found in Jesus, God in human form. And that's why Jesus could say, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. But then also because he is the sustainer of the universe. It says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 1.17 says, And he is before all things. <coughs> and in him all things hold together. And then finally, because he is the perfect sacrifice for sin. It says, after making purification for sins. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty for sin. All of those millions of goats and lambs and cattle that had been offered in sacrifice never really permanently paid for sin. Jesus is the one time, perfect, sinless sacrifice that was sufficient. Four times in the book of Hebrews, the writer uses the phrase, once for all, indicating the completeness of Christ's sacrifice for sin. Here's just one of those references in Hebrews 9.12. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Thank you, Adrian. Okay. So the last thing here we want to see, because he rules and reigns with God, this is, this is a follow-up to saying that he is the perfect sacrifice for sin. It says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's another way of saying to us that the work of Jesus on the cross was complete. None of the priests in the Old Testament sat down. You know, I, I enjoy reading through the Old Testament and New Testament pretty much every year. And you go through all that tabernacle furniture and, and it gets a little overwhelming, doesn't it? You know, this many tent poles and the rope for this and the base for this and, and the covering for this and this has to sit here and that goes there and you get kind of lost in all of that. But one thing that always stands out in my mind, no chairs. <laughs> Moses was never told to make a chair. 
Why? Because the work of an Old Testament priest was never done. Now, he may wear out at the end of a long day and go home, but someone else would have to take his place because that tabernacle, that temple, was man 24-7, 365. The work was never done. But when Jesus died on the cross and ascended to the Father's presence, he sat down. Just as he said at the end of his labor on the cross, it is finished. The prophets inhabit heaven, but Jesus rules over it. They behold the glory of God, but Jesus possesses the same glory. The prophets are the subjects of the kingdom, but Jesus, he is the king. Don't miss the awesome glory of Jesus portrayed in these three short verses. Jesus is the God of the universe who became man to offer up his life in payment for your sin and mine. Jesus is not just necessary. You know, there's a lot of religions that say, yeah, Jesus is part of it. You know, he does this and you do this and the church does that or what, all those other things. Jesus alone is sufficient to save us from our sin. He's not just part of a formula. He's it. And our faith and our trust are in him and in him alone. And I would ask you this morning, have you placed your trust in him alone for your salvation from sin? You can do that right here, right today. Simply acknowledge uh, Jesus and what he has done for you and that it was for you. It wasn't just a bunch of historical facts out there that people who are religious talk about or that are recorded in the Bible, but that that death was for you. It was for your sin. And place your faith and trust in him. And then I would close with these verses for those of us who have trusted Christ. Don't look back. Don't look around. And don't wonder if there's anything better than knowing and following Jesus. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let that be our desire and our challenge, not only today, but tomorrow, and during whatever life God gives us in the years to come. Father, we are grateful for Jesus. Lord, we are thankful that you did for us what we could not do. You sent us a Savior. And Lord, we're so thankful for him. 
Thank you for his life, his shed blood. Thank you for the fact that the way to forgiveness of sin is so simple. And it's all in Jesus. Lord, may our hearts be encouraged by that today. In Jesus' name.